Doomsinger nods as the name is revealed and closes his eyes. Thank you, little spider. Yes, I begin to see it. The thread leads to another. His eyes snap open with sudden intensity. But now is not the time to follow it. There are more pressing concerns. He strides towards the door. The creator who steps to intercept him is gestured aside by the spider. The Doomsinger turns in the doorway, looks around at the crew and inclines his head. Until we meet again, do watch out for the vampires. As he speaks, there is the sound of shattering glass from down the corridor. The tall, stained glass window at its far end bursts inwards in a shower of multicoloured shards and two black-clad figures, slender and lithe, rise amid the debris. They pull down leather hoods and smoked glass goggles to reveal red eyes and pallid skin. Their bloodless lips curl back into a display of needle-like canines. One opens its mouth to speak, but before it can say a word, the Doomsinger casually flicks a hand in its direction. The tiny ball of purple fire that had been burning in his hand flies down the corridor, expanding as it goes. It detonates with a deafening blinding impact, utterly incinerating the two Nightspawn and turning the far end of the corridor into a raging inferno. The Doomsinger winks at the spider and then charges towards and through the flames and then leaps out through the gaping ruin at the end of the wood-panelled corridor and into the endless drop of the evening sky. There is a long, long moment of stunned silence before Crater turns to the spider. So, remind me, Was that part of the plan? Hello and welcome to The Lone Adventurer, an actual play solo RPG podcast with me, Carl White. I will be your narrator, your game master, and your guide as we follow our heroes on their journey into the unknown. For this game, I'll be using the Blades in the Dark rule set, as well as a variety of other systems, tools, and tables as they take my fancy. A word of warning, the following scenes may contain mature themes and disturbing imagery. Listener discretion is advised. The adventure continues. Last time on The Lone Adventurer, Valerian and his crew were able to infiltrate into the very heart of the machine cultists' lair, the Hall of the Great Machine. And they learned that the secret source of the infernal powder lay at the centre of the Great Machine itself. The Spider's mission to capture the Veil Sisters from the Silver Nails ran into a serious complication. Their contact on the inside, Heart of Snow, proved a duplicitous and dangerous customer, and they only escaped capture and worse by giving up a highly sensitive piece of intelligence, the identity of the creator of the pathogen that killed the Whisperer. Before we get into discussing that teaser scene, I think it's worth taking a moment to talk about what happened with Alpha Team in the last chapter because it's fair to say that quite a lot happened. 
I started the scene by deciding that I was going to try and extricate myself from the situation the crew found themselves in. Rather than allowing my characters to get clapped in irons and thrown in a jail cell, they were going to try and fight their way out. After all, we've already established that the Silver Nails are known for disemboweling and nailing people they don't like to doors. That meant creating a couple of clocks, one called Escape the Soldiers and one called Escape Heart of Snow. Crater has a special ability that allows him to push in order to take on whole groups of enemies, and so I used that as part of his opening skirmish move. I also decided he would take a Devil's Bargain. That's a mechanism that grants the player an extra dice at a cost determined by the GM. In this case, it seemed that an obvious cost was that by taking on this squad of Silver Nails goons, the party were inadvertently assisting with Lord Tortimus's takeover plans. Two ticks were added to that clock. I'm not going to go through all the details of the fight. Those are in the show notes if you're keen to see how it all played out in detail. What I will say is that the party managed the goons all right, but the Doomsinger proved a lot more troublesome. Spider tried to sway him, but failed, with the consequence of being allowed to try again, but from a worse position. And so she tried again, this time from a desperate position, and she decided to add another Devil's Bargain, the Blood Debt. But she succeeded this time, but with a serious consequence, lose something important. I had no idea what important things she might lose, and so I made a roll on the picture oracle, and I found an assassin and a potion bottle. My mind immediately jumped to the conclusion of the identity of the Whisperer's Poisoner. Prior to this roll, I really had no idea that the spider knew who created the pathogen. In fact, I'd never even considered the idea of a creator at all. But this prompt seemed to be steering me in precisely that direction, and once steered, the identity seemed blindingly obvious. When considered in the context of tying together existing threads, which is always a sensible approach to take when soloing an RPG, this could only be Mina's old teacher. I normally try and keep my GM and player personas quite separate when I'm playing solo. As a player, I typically know my background, my personality, and what my PC is going to try and do. As a GM, I interpret the vagaries of the oracles. But this situation was a little different, and it blurs the boundaries just a bit. What's happening here is, effectively, the GM is saying, PC, you actually know something you didn't know you knew. And that something is going to raise a bunch of other questions that probably aren't going to get answered right now. Now, in a traditional game of D&D, for example, I might feel a bit less comfortable doing that as a GM. But it seems a bit more reasonable in a game like Blades in the Dark, where the creation of the emerging narrative is a lot more collaborative. Normally, it's the players stepping into the GM space and assisting with building out the story. In this instance, it's the reverse, with the GM stepping into territory traditionally controlled by the player. Anyway, to be sure of my facts, I rolled on my simple question oracle with a very likely set of odds. Was Dr. Crop the creator of the pathogen? The answer was yes, but. This revelation raises some interesting questions. For example, what does the but mean? Was Crop perhaps coerced, or is Crop an agent of the unseen? How did the spider come by this intelligence, and why was she keeping it secret? And why is Heart of Snow so interested? The answer to all those questions, and more, are going to have to wait, though. 
Hopefully they will emerge as the story continues to unfold, but for now we have more immediate concerns. Specifically, the events I rolled for that teaser to this chapter. To kick things off this session, I decided to open by using the GM Oracle. My role gave me introduce a new threat or advance an existing one, and another role confirmed that Tortimus was the threat. A picture oracle roll told me that an airborne vampire spawn attack was about to take place, and I decided that that meant probably a couple more ticks in Tortimus's clock was reasonable. Four out of eight. More rolls informed me that Heart of Snow had seen this coming, and he was going to flee, setting a fire to cover his escape. So, Heart of Snow exits stage left, leaving the stakes considerably raised, and Alpha Team little further forward in their mission to track down and make off with the Vale Sisters. What are they going to do about it? Let's find out. The spider stares at Krita, trying to decide whether he's taking the piss or just being a damned idiot. Frankly, either option is plausible. Probably both. Before she has a chance to respond, there are a series of dull impacts from the hull of the Mustang above them sound of distant shattering glass, closely followed by screams. Sounds like the vampires are hearing force, and, naturally, that rapidly growing fire has cut them off from their planned route to the VIP area. Okay, plan B, she snaps. Salad, we're bringing the timetable forward. Time to drop this bird. We need the Mustang in freefall. That way we can force an immediate evacuation and intercept our pigeons en route. Once we have them, we can stabilise and get the hell off this place. Mission accomplished, but hopefully with minimal collateral damage. Can you do that from here? Sallow looks doubtful. Without direct access to Graffitic Arcana? Unlikely, Spider. The deep frown transforms into an instant manic rictus. But never say never. Grinning like a loon, the wild-haired technician unloads a series of esoteric tools from various pockets and sets to work, removing an oak panel and delving into a mass of impossibly complex cabling and baccala that lie within. His head and shoulders vanish inside the cavity, sparks flying as he works. That probably goes here, and this in there, and that probably disables the probability matrix of powering those impedance runes, and... There's a flash, and a loud bang, followed by... Ow! Bugger! from Sallow. And then, with a stomach-wrenching lurch, the Mustang Casino begins to fall. Sallow's head pops back out of the cavity, and he's looking somewhat shamefaced. Well, good news, Spider. The big pig is falling, just like you asked, right? The spider grimaces. And the bad news? Sallow shrugs. No turning flight back on? No, there isn't. Leastwise not from here. I reckon this piggy's flying days are over. Maybe for good. We're on an express elevator to hell, boss. Going down! Already, they can feel the deck tilting beneath their feet and the inexorable tug at their guts as gravity reasserts control over the mammoth edifice. The floatwood construction and supporting blimps will serve to slow their fall, but with the loss of the counter-gravitational conjurations, the Mustang is doomed. Crater leans in. I'm going to take a wild guess here. Not part of the plan, right? Spider grinds her teeth in barely restrained fury. No, Crater, not part of the fucking plan. The plan 
such as it was, is currently dead and buried, along with all its friends and relations, and its house has been burned down, with ill-wishers gleefully singing comic songs on the ruins. The plan, in a word, is screwed. Along with everything the web has stood for for so long, subtlety, discretion, the delicate touch. After all the grief she gave Valerian for his handling of the Ironhook mission, she can only imagine the shitstorm coming back her way for this disaster. Okay, to hell with it. Plan C. Back to the gambling halls and hope to intercept them as they evacuate. Either way, we need to get the hell off this rock before it hits the city, or, and I'm honestly not sure which is worse here, it misses the city and takes the long drop into the void sea. Neither of those two options bear thinking about, and to her credit, the spider manages to push them almost completely from her mind. There is nothing she can do about them now, and so best instead to just focus on the mission. They can still salvage something from this key-forsaken shamblathon, with the floor lurching alarmingly beneath their feet, and the pressure of gradually downward acceleration lifting their guts, the crew make their way back to the gaming hall. At some point in that last scene, I came to the conclusion that I'd not been using enough Devil's Bargains as part of my gameplay, and so in addition to deciding to use a whole lot more of them in future, I decided to create myself a Devil's Bargain Oracle. Sometimes a Devil's Bargain is obvious to me, that it just emerges from the fictional context, but sometimes I struggle to think of a suitable bargain to use. And for those occasions, I've used the list of common Devil's Bargains found on page 21 of the Blades rulebook, and added on a generic complication category of my own to bring the total list of options to an easily rollable 8. There's a link to the Oracle sheet in the show notes if you're interested, which has all the details. Anyhow, Salo had a wreck check to make to try and temporarily disable the Mustang's flight systems. I decided I wanted another dice on this roll, and elected to roll on my Devil's Bargain table. I got unexpected complication. That could apply to an NPC, or a faction, a situation, or, in this case, an environment. Well, even with that, it was frankly not that much help, and I still wasn't sure what this meant. And so I turned to the Handy Picture Oracle, and rolled myself a cog and a dragonfly. And I concluded that the bargain was this. In order to get an extra dice, Sallow would have to destroy, rather than disable, the hovering mechanism. Now, perhaps I shouldn't have taken this bargain, given the cataclysmic implications for the Mustang and her occupants, but what can I say? It seemed like a good idea at the time. Anyhow, my action roll gave me a success with a complication, advancing the get out with the sisters clock, but also setting up something problematic. Because... With the plan in tatters, and the casino falling from the sky, of course, we need more problems. I'm put slightly in mind of Sideshow Bob, endlessly stepping on rakes. Let's see which one hits our crew in the face next. The screams coming from the end of the corridor that is not currently a roaring inferno are growing louder, and as they draw closer, the unmistakable sounds of pitched battle grow ever more apparent. It sounds pretty bad, but even their imagined worst-case scenarios cannot prepare them for the 
chaos that awaits them beyond the door. The veneer of civility, translucent thin as it might have been, has been scoured away to reveal the raw, red wound beneath. This is basic animal survival, and it is as ugly as it is brutal. There has been interfactional tension before, of course, but as panic and desperation have gripped the occupants, first from the terrifying arrival of the swarm of vampire spawn, scuttling like beetles over walls and ceilings, and then from the vertiginous tilt and drop of the casino, any last vestiges of restraint or allegiance have melted away to hell with factional loyalty. It's every man, woman, and vampire for themselves, and the ensuing carnage is so indiscriminate that it is all but impossible to make sense of the scene in front of them. The sounds and sights of terror, rage, and anguish wash over them, leaving them numb with horror. Well, almost all of them. Crater has a look in his eye that is disturbingly close to lust. Oh, shit, yeah, he moans, and a concealed meat hook drops from within the sleeve of his frock coat and into his meaty fist. My kind of pie. Before the spider can collect her thoughts, things go even further sideways. A grey-faced vampire drops from the ceiling above them, landing on the back of a man who looks like a minor noble. He goes down, shrieking in terror, one hand outstretched towards the crew. Help me! I have money! I have power! Not enough power, it would seem. The vampire plunges fangs into the flailing man's neck, and it begins to feed. And before their eyes, the noble's features begin to blur and flow, the skin turning white as porcelain. Unseen, the spider whispers in horror, and she is not alone in her observation. The mob, already in a high state of panic, react almost instantly to the revelation that there are shapeshifters among them, the intensity in the room somehow rising to a still higher fever pitch of terror. Sallow tugs at the spider's sleeve and points. Our pigeons are flying the coop, boss! Across the gaming hall, beyond the heaving mass of mayhem and slaughter, the boss of the Silver Nails, Sereth Pinto, is climbing the broad sweep of stairs at the centre of a protective scrum of soldiers. On either side of him, swords drawn, Amada and Lin, the Vale Sisters. The group are gradually fighting their way up towards the exits, but it's slow going in the press of desperate folks all with the same destination in mind. Crater, the spider begins, but she's way behind her comrade. Alphonse has already dived into the fray head first and is carving a path towards their targets. It looks like he's having the time of his life. Try to keep up! He bellows over the screams. I don't plan on coming back for you. He's almost reached the hard-pressed Silvernail's troops when their small team is spotted. Lynn, a wiry, spiked-haired woman, points them out, taking a step in front of an ashen-faced Sereth. Cover our retreat, she snaps to the guards. Looks like we have active hostiles at our back. And it is this distraction that proves the undoing of the Silvernails. The tall, elegant figure... Silver-haired and immaculately dressed in a finely tailored suit of midnight blue, calmly descends the stairs, slicing through the crush of frantically struggling bodies as though they were of no consequence at all. Any that do stray into his path are sent flying from the staircase, seemingly without any effort on the part of the man who now, equally casually, evades the blades of two guards still facing him. All 
while holding what appears to be an elderly green-eyed pug in the crook of one arm. With a movement that is too quick to follow with the human eye, he opens both their throats. Weapons fall from their hands as they stumble aside, eyes wide with shock. Too late, Mara and Lin turn, but before they can bring their weapons to bear, the dark-suited man has flicked them both aside with a dismissive gesture. They slam into opposite banisters with sufficient force to break ribs. Lord Tortimus, the Night Queen's consort, Prince of the Undying, stands before the leader of the Silver Nails. He is half the burly man's width, but a good head and a half taller. You know, it really was terribly unwise of you to invite me aboard, Seraph, he smiles, in a voice like crushed velvet. He reaches out, slow and deliberate, and calmly snaps Seraph's neck with a crack that momentarily freezes the entire room in place. The attentive listener may have spotted that it's all Alpha Team this chapter. I figured that, with the missions nearing their climaxes, it made sense to split them out and allow each the space to conclude at their own pace. And that pace, in Alpha Team's case at least, appears to be about 300 BPM. So, I had a consequence to determine for the start of this scene, and it turned out to be a new obstacle, the introduction of a pitched battle, and the unseen revealed. It made sense in the fiction that this would block the crew from their targets, and so I had Cutter make a skirmish roll, this time from a desperate position. But that was only two dice, and everyone was pretty short on stress, meaning that pushing the roll or lending an assist, well, both were tough options. The answer? Another devil's bargain, of course. I rolled on my new oracle and got start and or tick a troublesome clock. Well, it seemed to me that the obvious clock to check off here was Tortimus's, ruled the silver nails, and so that clock increased to six out of eight. Then I rolled my three dice, and what you know, I got another success with a consequence. My get out with the sisters clock increased to 11 of 12. I was so close now, I could almost taste it, but first I had to roll on the consequence oracle to see what had gone wrong. And of course, the roll I got said mark a clock. Tortimus was now at 8 out of 8 and had taken over the silver nails. He'd killed his rival. Still, this is not the end of the world, and actually it might turn out to be better for me. With the nails under new leadership, the web's role in this whole debacle might just be overlooked. There's just one final success required to complete the mission. Here we go. The Vampire Lord speaks into the silence that follows the death of the Lord General of the Silver Nails, his voice clear and powerful. Seraph Pinto has ceded control of the Silver Nails to the Court of the Undying. You are all free to leave. His eyes meet those of the Spider and her team standing at the foot of the stairs, narrow. Everyone except you three. My vassals did not set the Mustang falling, and Pinto was too greedy by far to scupper his own citadel while he thought he had a chance at survival. You three, by contrast, have a look about you which suggests conversation might prove fruitful. 
smiles, tickling the pug under its chin, and his red eyes smolder like twin portals into hell. A conversation I suspect I am going to enjoy a great deal more than you. The pug chooses this highly charged moment to release a lengthy and highly audible fart. Tortimus wrinkles his nose in distaste. Oh, Susan, really? How to completely ruin the mood? I simply can't take you anywhere. Susan, for her part, doesn't appear to be remotely abashed. But the momentary distraction has given Spider the opening she needs. Sallow, plan D, she cries. Do it now! Sallow looks at her, uncertain. Are you sure? I have absolutely no idea if this is going to work. Damn it, Sallow, now! Sallow shrugs. Okay, if you say so. She grins off the crater. They call me the unhinged one. He pulls a device from his pocket, presses a button, and whispers, Boom! Lord Tortimus looks up from his small dog and arches a perfectly trimmed eyebrow. Boom? What do you mean, boom? There's a detonation like the end of the world. Half the room is flung to the floor by the force of the blast and the subsequent shower of glass and wooden debris. The whole far wall of the gaming hall, including the three-storey high stained glass window, a masterpiece by Kadarovsky that is widely rated as being amongst the most priceless works of art in the city, is simply gone. In its place, there is nothing but a gaping, ragged hole overlooking a vertiginous drop into the cloud layer. The whole casino gives a terrifying lurch, tilting alarmingly and sending gaming chips, clouds of playing cards and several occupants tumbling out and into space. Those still within the hall scramble desperately for handholds as the floor continues to tilt over at an ever steeper angle. Praying that this mad gamble will pay off, the spider calls out to Seraph's newly unemployed bodyguards. Mara, Lynn, we're your extraction team! Follow us if you want to live! And with that, she and her crew are running directly towards the drop. Despite the accelerating pull of gravity, time seems to slow with each stride. She hears Traitor's terrified string of profanities to one side, Sallow's manic giggle at the other, and then they are leaping into open air, arms pinwheeling with nothing below them but the bottomless void sea. So that previous scene was basically all set up for one final roll. Let me explain. In addition to getting one more tick on the mission clock, I needed to be able to match that to a way that the team could get out of this situation that made sense in the fiction. And so I decided to burn the very last of my crew's stress on two flashbacks. One of those we saw in that last scene, when Sallow and Crater were sent by the spider to go and play back in Chapter 4, what they were actually doing was subtly leaving a series of discrete explosive charges. The second flashback will be revealed in the next scene. Hopefully. A very brief interlude regarding Sweet Flatulent Susan. I mentioned a while back that Tortimus was an established NPC in this setting. Well, farty old Susan came as part of that package. I've always felt that villains are made much more interesting when we learn about what they love rather than just what they hate, and Susan is the perfect expression of that principle. 
Anyway, my flashbacks left Salo free to make this final action roll. Now, this was indisputably going to be made from a desperate position, and clearly Salo was going to do what he was best at and wreck. This was it. All or nothing, do or die, and so I threw everything I had at it. I had Crater Assist. I took another Devil's Bargain, which, it turned out, after a quick roll, uh, was Offend or Anger a Faction. Guess which one. And so it all comes down to this. Four dice to roll, and I need a four, a five, or a six on any one of those dice to complete the mission. Let the dice fall where they may. The spider had speculated earlier which would be worse, the Mustang crashing in slow motion into the city on the chain, or missing it and taking the long drop. Of course the former option would be a disaster, no doubt resulting in multiple deaths and large-scale property destruction. But at least that way, there might be some chance for the poor souls aboard the Mustang. The alternative is arguably far worse. Below the Great North Chain that links the continents of Kyrell and Conflict, there is nothing but the endless Void Sea. Anything descending into those misread depths will be falling forever into increasingly corrosive clouds, prey to the horrors rumoured to dwell within. She turns in mid-air, trusting in her companions to play their parts, and extends both her hands. The Vale Sisters, as one, have leapt from the Grand Stairway and are half running, half sliding through the crazily angled gaming hall towards the edge. Jump! The spider cries as below her, bursting through the clouds, her ship, the Void Cutter, rises into view. The sisters fling themselves into space, arms desperately outstretched. And then the spider looks past them, standing with no apparent difficulty on a polished floor that is now tilted well past 45 degrees, Lord Tortimus observes her with a look of faint amusement. A nice try, he smiles, but I think not. Susan, fetch. The elderly pug begins to morph and grow, tentacles bursting from its back, the chocolate and cream fur turning purple-black. In an imploding cloud of purple smoke, it vanishes with a pop only to reappear in mid-air between the two sisters. It is fully nine feet long now, the body or lean muscle and sinew beneath a glossy coat. The snarling face looks more cat-like than dog now, and tentacles whip out and wrap around the bodyguards, whose hands are mere inches from the spiders. In another implosion of smoke, Susan and the sisters vanish, only to reappear at the vampire lord's feet. Good girl. Tortimus purrs and points down at the spider. Now, that one. And then the void cutter is speeding past, the crew caught one after another in the wide, open net that trails behind the little airship and are carried away out of sight and out of range. Tortimus's lip curls in mild frustration before he turns on his heel. The spider's crew are free, for what that's worth. Because that escape has come at one hell of a price. The widespread destruction, the loss of life, the loss of sensitive intelligence to the Doomsinger, the highly public extraction attempt in front of multiple potentially hostile factions, and of course, the very direct attention from Lord Tortimus, the most deadly representative of the deadliest of the Seven Guilds. All that cost, and for what? 
terrible truth comes crashing in on the spider. They failed. They've gambled everything they had in their attempt to capture the Vale Sisters. And they've lost. You have been listening to The Lone Adventurer, a solo RPG podcast played, written, and performed by me, Carl White. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider telling your friends about it or leaving a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. It really is a huge help. You can find me on Twitter at TheLoneADV. You can email me at TheLoneADV at gmail.com or follow my blog at carlillustration.wordpress.com You can find show notes for this episode and all the others at theloneadventurer.podbean.com where I include any links mentioned in the episode as well as mechanics information. I also include a link to a full episode transcript. The story will continue in the next episode of The Lone Adventurer. Thank you for listening.